Well, as I was privileged to have this opportunity to preach, I always have to think through what I'm going to do. And, and I was greatly impacted by the fact that next weekend we are going to have a conference at Lakeside on biblical manhood. And I would encourage you men, if you haven't signed up, please do so. It's going to be a great time together of teaching and also fellowship with the men of the church. And it's that concept that we were coming together for a time where men were going to be challenged and presented with truths about what it means for biblical manhood, what it means to be a biblical man, that it caused me to focus this morning on a text that's going to deal with our roles as husbands. As you look around the world around us, America is increasingly hostile, it's not a surprise, to what we believe. Perhaps there was a time when the American general cultural values lined up loosely at least with Scripture, but that time has long since passed. In fact, I think most of America would be very skeptical and would deem it offensive that we would bother to have a conference on something like biblical manhood. They would view it as a threat or some last gasp attempt to defend patriarchy and misogyny, which of course we know to be false, but that's how our views are seen by the culture at large. How the Bible defines life and happiness and morality and marriage and how American culture through its institutions and its educational system and its government defines those same terms is now radically separate. In fact, over time, the chasm between what the Bible says is reality and what secular society around us says is reality has grown so great as to be unbridgeable. It happens in every aspect of our theological life. The Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth, but of course society and the educational system says that's not true. Evolution explains it all. We don't need God for that. The Bible says God created humanity, male and female, and just in the last few years, that's become hate speech. Because, of course, society has figured out that there's no such thing as really gender, male or female, but there's a continuum, and you can move back and forth, you can pick what you want. In fact, we'll butcher the American language with pronouns to help you do it. The world views all of our views of male and female really as just evil. The Bible says this is reality. On and on I could go, but perhaps no area is the cultural divide greater than in the area of marriage. Marriage, contrary to what most people think, is not a cultural institution. It's not something defined by the government. It's not something created by the Supreme Court. Marriage was created by God himself. And Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 says this, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God ordained marriage from the very beginning when there was just Adam and Eve... And it's his institution. One man and one woman joined together in a covenant before God committed for life. Now I'm not that old, but again, there was a time in my childhood when general society sort of played by those rules. I didn't grow up in a metropolis, but as my childhood, I only remember one friend who was in a family of divorce. 
Because even amongst unbelievers, people believed, well, one man, one woman for life. Obviously, that's changed radically. First, same-sex marriage is now the law of the land, and in most parts of the world, it's increasing. Divorce isn't just tolerated, it's in many cases celebrated. And the idea of two people becoming one flesh and having the same hopes and dreams, my goodness, that would be wrong. You need to identify as yourself. Don't let yourself become consumed by the marriage. In fact, the most important thing is to figure out how to love yourself. Keep your identity separate. Sadly, time and time again, Christians have not led the culture. They've followed the culture. And these types of views that should be aberrant to anyone who understands even a little bit about the Bible have become mainstream and accepted, but sadly in many places calling themselves Christian churches. Now, there are implications for all of this, but perhaps no area has done more harm to the Christian witness than the attack on marriage. Because a Christian marriage as our scripture reading showed us, is supposed to be a picture to the world showing the love of Christ for His bride, the church. It's supposed to be a testimony, and yet, nowadays, that's foreign even in churches. Sadly, in countless churches, people have seen the damage done by so-called Christian marriages and it's called some people to leave church altogether. This morning, I'm not going to try and solve every bad marriage or fix every problem at Lakeside. In fact, the Bible's very clear. People have always fallen short of God's ideals. It's only that in the past, that was viewed as a shortcoming. Now it's celebrated as progress. But through our study of a single verse, I'm going to try and redirect our attention and provide a focus for every married couple at Lakeside. Now, I read Ephesians 5 that gives direction to husbands and wives. In a few moments, I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. But our study this morning really is going to focus on one verse, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, and its instruction to husbands. Again, the conference caused me to look this way, but I also realize that God gives men the primary role of leadership in the marriage relationship. It's husbands who are accountable to the Lord for their marriages. And if husbands would do what God commanded them to do, most marital problems would be overcome. Ephesians chapter 5, I'll read it again, verses 23 and 24 says very clearly, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. God has given husbands a specific responsibility and a specific privilege. And he's going to hold Christian husbands to account for their fulfillment of this responsibility. So this morning, I am preaching specifically to the husbands at Lakeside. If you're single, don't tune me out. One day, if you're male, you may be a husband. And these lessons are for you even now. Or you may have a friend who is a Christian husband who needs rebuke for falling short of God's standards. 
And wives, this isn't a message for you just to elbow your husband over and over and see, see, I told you so. Let me encourage you to think of it in a different way. God has given you as your husband's helpmate. If your husband is falling short, prayerfully be asking yourself, Lord, how can I come alongside my husband, the man you've given me to help, so that he can fulfill his responsibilities towards you? But for the husbands, this is coming for us. Now, we're going to be jumping into a single verse. So before we parachute in and just jump into 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, I want to give a little context because it's very necessary to understand what Peter is saying and to put it in the context of the book as a whole. The theme of 1 Peter is really very simple. I think it's found in chapter 1, beginning in verse 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Everything in the book is directed towards this. There's practical instruction, including our text this morning, but it's all geared to showing us how to be holy as God is holy in the various spheres of life. And Peter makes clear that actually all of this is a testimony to a lost and dying world. In 1 Peter 2.12 he says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, some people will witness our behavior, and even though they initially think of it as evil, some of them will come to faith and they'll recognize, I get it. It's about Jesus. So Peter begins to lay out in chapter 2 a lot of the practical realities of what this looks like. Not just theologically who we are, but practically what we're supposed to do. And it all is building towards what I'm going to be talking about for husbands, and it all has a part to play. But in chapter 2, he tells us we submit to the government, even if the government, like in his day, had corrupt leadership like the emperor Nero. And then he tells slaves to submit to their masters. In our context, it would be the employer-employee relationship. And he says, not just for those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable, very evil. In fact, the entire focus of the book is recognizing that in a fallen world, we will face injustice. Life isn't fair. Things are not going to go our way, and yet we still have a responsibility to do what God says regardless. And in the midst of chapter 2, and we're going to come back to it, he gives the example of Jesus and how Jesus responded and how Jesus approached things and makes it clear Jesus is our example. So the way we live holy and keep our behavior excellent, even in the face of injustice and unfairness, is by remembering and following the example of Jesus. So as we get to 1 Peter 3, and I'm going to read the first seven verses, even though we're only studying verse 7, Peter's transitioning to yet another area of life where we need to be holy as God is holy and we need to keep our behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles, which is just amongst unbelievers. So follow along with me as I begin and I'll read verses 1 to 7. Verses 1 to 6 are dealing with wives. Maybe someday in the future I'll preach that, but we're focusing on verse 7. 
beginning at verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. As we study this today, it's a simple outline. It's going to be three marks of a godly husband. Three marks of a godly husband. And the first mark is this. You entrust your marriage to the Lord. You entrust your marriage to the Lord. I get this, and I'll have to explain it a little bit, but I think you'll see it. From the beginning of verse 7, you husbands in the same way. Now, I read this entire section because it's clearly showing the husband and wife relationship. But verse 1 says something similar. In the same way, you wives. So there's something that is the same way that we're supposed to be referencing. The wives are told in the same way. The husbands are told in the same way. And in some respects, this has caused some people to go astray. Because in the same way for the wives is you submit to your husband. And then they come to verse 7 and they say, well, see, Peter's teaching that both are submit to both. There's not really an order in marriage. And that's not what Peter's doing at all. That's not what he references. In fact, Peter would affirm that there's a hierarchy in marriage. That there are different roles for husband and wife. And that the husband is to lead and the wife is to submit. I've read it before. I'll read it again. Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ also is head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. There is a hierarchy. There is a different order. There is a different role for husbands and wives. And Peter is not negating that by his use of the word in the same way. Rather, I believe Peter is referring back to something in chapter 2 that has to do with Jesus. And this is very important. Listen very carefully to this because it all ties back to Jesus. Peter in chapter 2 gave hard instruction. Submit to the government. Because the government was largely wicked and corrupt. Nero was the emperor. That was a hard lesson. We know our own struggle with our own government. When people we don't like are in office. So Peter said submit to the government. Then he told slaves who I said the application of this, as I preached it in the past, is employer-employee, but at that time it wasn't anything like that. Slaves had no rights. They were property. And Peter was saying, even if you have a terrible boss, 
Even if you have a terrible master, not a good and gentle one, but an unreasonable one who was unfair, you still submit. Peter knew this was very difficult. In fact, as he had told servants in verse 18, and I don't have this in my notes for the overhead, but in in verse 18, he said, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Then he explains it. In verse 19, For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Verse 20, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. In the midst of unfairness and justice, when he was being persecuted and slandered, and ultimately when he was being killed, Jesus didn't retaliate. He didn't sin by word or deed. But God the Son kept entrusting himself to God the Father throughout it all. That's the issue. Jesus kept entrusting himself to God. Chapter 3 verse 1. Wives in the same way that Jesus entrusted himself to God, even when things were difficult, you submit entrusting yourself to God. Verse 7, husbands, in the same way that Jesus entrusted himself to God, you entrust yourself, and by implication, your marriage to the Lord. That's what's in view when we come to verse 7. In the same way that Jesus lived a godly life and avoided sin and was godly in his speech and trusted God no matter the circumstances, no matter how unfair, no matter how difficult, so husbands also are supposed to do the same types of things in marriage. Jesus' example is perfect for those facing injustice, but it's also perfect for husbands in their relationship with their wives. Here's the point, and I'm not preaching about wives. But we understand every married couple is comprised of two sinners. There are no perfect wives. I'm sure your wife has shortcomings. I'm sure your wife doesn't do everything that God demands. They won't always exhibit the character qualities set forth in chapter 3 verses 1 to 6. But it doesn't matter men. You don't have an excuse. Even in the midst of that type of marriage you keep entrusting yourself to the Lord just like Jesus and trust your marriage to the Lord it's not about you and you fixing it's about you being obedient and letting the Lord take care of everything I think I'm being clear but before we go farther I want to be very clear so I'm going to reiterate this husbands the key to you being a holy husband And keeping your behavior excellent as a husband is not your wife and her behavior. It's your relationship with God. 
you being holy and living a life of excellence isn't dependent on anything your wife does. It's dependent on your relationship with the Lord and how much you trust Him and obey Him. The key is your faith and trust in God, not your wife's behavior or performance on any given day of the week. Because if you trust God and entrust your marriage to Him and strive with all your heart for obedience, then you can be a godly husband no matter what type of wife you have. I recognize maybe she doesn't always submit and trust yourself to the Lord. Well, maybe she pressures me and I'm tired and trust yourself to the Lord. You can have the worst wife in history and I don't believe you if you tell me you do. But it's no excuse. Be holy as God is holy by entrusting yourself not to your wife or even to yourself and your own abilities, but entrust yourself and your marriage to your loving Heavenly Father just like Jesus. That's the first mark of a godly husband. You entrust your marriage to the Lord. The second mark is this. You devote yourself to a life of study. You devote yourself to a life of study. Verse 7 continues. You husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way. In the course of this verse, there's two imperative commands. The second one will be our third point. But here's the first. Live with your wives in an understanding way. This isn't optional. This isn't occasional. This is how we are supposed to live as husbands at all times as long as we're married. This isn't, again, something we do to manipulate or win favor. It's something that we do because we fear the Lord and we want to honor Him. Live with your wives is comprehensive. It refers to every aspect of your married life. You share a home together. You're supposed to. That's part of living with your wife your friendship your communication how you talk to each other how you handle your finances how you raise your children the decisions you make the goals and priorities you have every aspect of it is involved in this concept of living with your wives and there's a prescribed method for every husband Live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, it says live with your wife according to knowledge. A husband is supposed to live wisely with his wife and to do that according to these scriptures, he has to know his wife. He needs to pay attention to her. He needs to know what she likes and what she dislikes. He needs to learn about her dreams and her hopes and her weaknesses and her strengths. This has nothing to do with studying in school. You can have all the degrees in the world and fail miserably at this. Likewise, you can have nothing more than a grade school education and you can have the ability to live with your wife according to knowledge. As one commentator said, this involves the husband's understanding of the wife's desires, goals, and frustrations, knowledge of her strengths and weaknesses in the physical, emotional, and spiritual realms. I've seen this over and over in my Christian life, long before I became a pastor, but certainly after I've become a pastor. And it's very sad that many Christian men 
pay little to no attention to their wives. They're clueless. They know a little bit of what their wives do on a daily basis because they have clean clothes and they have food to eat. But they don't know their wives, who she is in Christ, who she is as a person. Men, that's just not acceptable. It's not okay. You have to learn about your wives and it's a never-ending process. You never graduate from this school. I'll use myself as an example, not because I have this down. I fail miserably in many ways. I'm better than I used to be, but I'm not as good as I should be. But I use myself because I can't offend myself, which I could do if I use someone else. But I've been married to my wife, Debbie, for over 30 years. I've known her for over 40 years since we met in 1982 when her family moved to my hometown and we started the 10th grade together. A lot has happened in those 40 years. While Debbie is still as pretty as she was when she moved to my hometown, she's a different person. We got married in 1992. Both of us were very different people in 1992. I wasn't even a believer. We had our first daughter, Rachel, in 1997. We were very different as new parents. Our second daughter, Heather, was born in 1999. We're very different now than we were then. In fact, when our daughter Christine was born in 2007, I've often said she had different parents than the first two girls because we were so old by that time. What's my point? We're very different. And we've changed a lot. We have gone through so many different things. Debbie moved from St. Petersburg to San Diego for us to get married. Then we moved from San Diego to Fresno for my work. Then we moved from Fresno to Los Angeles for me to go to seminary. We transitioned careers from lawyer to pastor. We moved from L.A. to Safety Harbor. We've gone through deaths and births and joys and sorrows and her battle with cancer. My point is this, not to focus on us. The point is we have changed radically over the last 30 years of marriage. And my responsibility, and it's the same for you men, is to find out how every one of those changes and events impacts my wife. How does it change her? What does it do to her hopes and fears? What does it do to what she aspires to be before the Lord? If I'm to live with her according to knowledge, I have to pay attention to her and take note of what's happening at every event in life because life is constantly changing. And we're constantly changing. I've heard countless times you have to, people in a bad marriage say, well, we just grew apart. Men, that can never happen in a Christian marriage because it's your responsibility to keep track of who you're married to, to know her, to live with her in an understanding way. You've got to make it a priority to be a student of your wife, observing and listening and caring about what she thinks. I get it. Life is busy. There have been times in our life, including it seems now, where it's hard to find 10 minutes to have a conversation on an adult level. I know many of you are in those positions. But husbands, it's still your job and you don't ever get to take a vacation from this. You've got to live with your wife in an understanding way and you've got the responsibility to do it. Certainly it's the kind of counsel I would give a young man aspiring to be married but it's the same counsel I would give a man that's been married for 50 years. You've got to live with your wife in an understanding way. Men, if you're not doing that, start now. 
There's no excuse. Can I ask you, men, do you know what your wife's hopes are, what her dreams are? What does she like and what does she dislike? Let me encourage you, be a student of your wife. Even if you failed miserably for a long time, start today, repent before the Lord, and beginning today, live with your wife in an understanding way. Not just this afternoon, but for the rest of your life. It's interesting because Peter makes it clear that part of that knowledge is recognizing that men and women are not created exactly the same by the Lord. He continues on, live with your wives in an understanding way as someone weaker since she is a woman. Now, of course, that would offend everybody in our modern culture. No politician will run on that campaign slogan. But the reality is, it is God's word and it is true and it's not an insult to women. If you value the world's views more than God's word, you could be upset. But if you value God's word, you understand that God's not demeaning women. He's merely pointing out something about the created order. Peter is just providing us a basis of one aspect of the knowledge is that we have to make allowances for the fact that our wives are different from us. Peter's term here literally translated as weaker vessel. And the imagery here is that God creates vessels for his uses and men, the husbands are vessels and the wives are vessels and of the two, the wife is weaker. That's all Peter's saying. It's really the imagery that, that the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Timothy chapter 2 beginning at verse 20. Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels but also vessels of wood and of earthenware and some to honor and some to dishonor. Verse 21, therefore if anyone cleanses himself from these things he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Peter is using this type of language and saying husbands are vessels and wives are vessels for the Lord's work but of the two the wife is the weaker vessel. Again, he's not demeaning women. Later, he's going to reference, and we'll study and talk about the fact that he says that our wives are fellow heirs with the grace of life. They have the same standing before the Lord in regards to salvation as we do. I'll reference this verse again later, but Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, Free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Peter isn't changing that, he's not challenging that. He's not demeaning women. He's not saying women are less intelligent. He's not saying women are spiritually inferior. What is acknowledging, I think, is a simple truth that impacts our lives, that generally speaking, women are not as strong physically as men, and it has implications as we face the rigors of life. Of course, there are exceptions. It's not universally true, but in general, Peter's simply saying that in the created order, males... The husbands are physically stronger than the wives and men. You need to make allowances for that as you live life. Probably that had more direct application in more labor-intensive economies like an agrarian economy, a husband needing to make allowances for his wife's limitations in working in the fields, or in a fishing business, if the wife was fishing with the husband, he would have to make allowances for it. But even if you're not a farmer or a fisherman, and even if your life is not centered around physical labor, it still has application to you. Men, you need to know your wife's abilities and limitations. 
and the physical limitations come with emotional consequences and you just need to be aware of it. And as part of living with her in an understanding way, recognize that your wife is made differently than you. We need to live life with an understanding that in some respects our wives may have limitations that we don't have and we need to make allowances, accommodations. Protect your wives, gentlemen. Certainly in the context of life, wives are in the biblical role. They have to submit to their husbands so they're in a weaker position also relationally. Be mindful of that. Be a student of your wife. Know her. Know her strengths, but know her weaknesses. Know her limitations and accommodate them. If you know your wife has weaknesses, help her. Don't exploit her. You're called to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You need to be a student of her so that you can love her as God intended. Because if you don't, it's not just that you'll have a bad testimony to your children, which you will, and a bad testimony to a lost and dying world, which you will, but it's going to hinder your relationship to God because God's going to hold you accountable. That leads us to the third mark of a godly husband. You entrust your marriage to the Lord. You devote yourself to a life of study. And third, you treat your wife with love and respect. You treat your wife with love and respect. Peter's second imperative is relatively simple. And show her honor. Show her honor. Again, this is not phrased in a way that this is something you do when you want something. Well, I'll show her honor because I want to watch the game today. Or I'll show her honor because I want to go hang out with my buddies. That's not honor. That's negotiation. This goes way beyond that. This is a way of life. It's God's command for how you are to live with your wife continuously every day for the rest of your life. Show her honor. Show conveys the idea of assigning something of value. Giving someone their due. Every husband is mandated by God to give, to bestow honor upon his wife. And honor is worth its value. It's to make her see how valuable she is to you. Listen to me carefully, men. Does your wife know that you treasure her? Does she know that you appreciate what she does for you? Does she know that you praise God for his choice for you of a wife? Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I'm just letting these things sink in because they speak for themselves, man. And I want to clarify this because it's very, very important. None of this is predicated on your wife's performance. She's not required to earn your praise. The honor you give her is not to be her wages for being a good wife. 
is something God says is her due as a fellow heir of the grace of life. I read many expressions and various commentaries of this idea of showing your wife honor. Showing consideration, making allowances for her, treating her with what we refer to as chivalrous acts, treasuring time with her and spending time with her in companionship, using kind and affirming words both privately and in public, showing her by the use of your time that she is a priority in your life. Do you compliment your wife regularly? Do you express appreciation when she does things for you? Do you avoid criticizing her in front of your kids or in front of your family or in front of other people? Do you avoid making fun of her or ever letting her be the butt of your jokes? This is not as hard as many Christian men would make it seem. But I'll be honest. Many Christian men do not regularly and consistently show their wives honor. I certainly have seen it over and over again in counseling. But I saw it before I was a pastor. And I've seen it in myself. Looking in the mirror when I've become so consumed with what I'm doing that I've neglected to pay attention to my wife. That's what makes it so sad is that we can be so blinded men to the fact that this is vile sin against a holy God. We can even justify it that we're just doing all these important things. But if you're not showing your wife honor, you're dishonoring her and you're sinning against God. And there are consequences. I've seen countless men who are married to women who are really trying. They're not perfect. There is no such thing as a perfect woman. But they want to serve their families and they want to do for their kids and they want to serve in the church. But the husband is so full of himself and so full of pride that all he sees is what she didn't do. Overlooking countless hours of sacrifice and emphasizing one moment of weakness. It's the opposite of love and honor, men. It's selfishness and entitlement and it's an offense not just to your wife, it's an offense to God. And it just shows that if we're not careful, husbands can be so filled with pride, they think they earned it. They're entitled to it. They neglect the warning of 1 Peter chapter 5, the second part of verse 5. And all of you, clothe yourselves with Humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Husbands of Lakeside, your wives deserve honor. Not because they earn it, but because God commands that you give it. Generously. Love her. Praise her. Compliment her. Cherish her. Spend time with her. Jesus said, if you love me, You will keep my commandments. This is one of them. At its core, do you treasure your wife like God treasures your wife? Peter goes on and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. 
This has nothing to do with you and your worth. This has to do with the fact that God saved you both. You're both heirs of the grace of life. Yes, she has a different role from you. Yes, God commands her to do certain things. But understand in heaven, she doesn't have a back seat. She is equal with you before God. She is a fellow heir with Christ. She has the same inheritance in heaven that you do. God loves her just as he loves you. How dare you refuse to honor someone that God loves so much. Again, going back to Galatians chapter 3, reading a couple extra verses, beginning in verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Your wife may be weaker as a vessel, but she's not inferior before the Lord. She's a fellow heir of the grace of life. And I can assure you in heaven, there won't be that distinction. Your wife won't submit to you in heaven. In fact, it won't even be the same relationship. As Jesus said in Matthew 22 verse 30, For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So what's the point of all this, husbands? Don't be so consumed with yourself and your goals and your priorities that you fail to show honor to the fellow heir of the grace of life that God has given you as a good and gracious gift as your wife. One of the reasons we bestow honor is because God's given them honor by sending Jesus to die for them. I pray that this is convicting for you. But perhaps you're still not there. Perhaps you think, well, I can continue to show indifference. It's not that bad. I don't have time to show her honor. I can't possibly live with her in an understanding way. I got too many important things to do. First, if your mind goes there, you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. But if you are in the faith, then you have to decide. It's not about your relationship with your wife solely. It's whether you want to have a relationship with God. Because Peter makes it clear that God does not laugh at these things. If you refuse to treat your wife with love and respect, if you will not show her honor as a course of life, you're deluding yourself if you think you have a close relationship with the Lord. Peter continues in verse 7. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. I think this verse sums up one of the major problems with Christian churches and Christian marriages. It's not because the wives are all these terrible things. It's because husbands... Don't honor their wives and God closes off the door of prayer to these men. Certainly unrepentant sin 
can incur God's discipline of failure to read the word or to attend church and all those things. But if you're not honoring your wife, I can put the finger on the biggest problem you have because it says here that God is not listening to your prayers. It's interesting. Peter's not arguing that men should pray. He assumes it. The Bible says pray without ceasing. Peter assumes the men will pray. Peter assumes also that men understand that God promises to answer prayers. In fact, a beautiful promise of Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find His grace to help in time of need. Peter just assumes that's true and he assumes any right-thinking, believing husband would want that access to God. But what he's saying to us is that if you don't honor your wife, that access is cut off. The word hinder was a military term. It stopped. It's a barrier. It's an obstruction. You can't go down that road because it's blocked off. That ought to scare you to death if you don't show honor to your wife. When you don't live with your wife in an understanding way, when you don't honor her, God does not hear your prayers in the same way. I believe in the entirety of Scripture, that's one of God's hands of discipline on husbands is to leave them on their own devices. It's almost as though there's a tin roof above you and your prayers are just clanging back the entire time you're dishonoring your wife. I don't know how many times over the years, both before I was a pastor and since being a pastor, where I've talked to men and their marriages were a mess, And they were not doing what God commanded. I could see that without doing an in-depth study. And I asked them, how's your relationship with the Lord? Oh, it's good. It's not terrible with my wife, but my relationship with the Lord's good. No, it's not. You're deceived. If you're treating your wife with dishonor and you think your relationship with the Lord is okay, the Bible would define that as foolishness. That's what Peter's telling us. God's putting obstacles in the road to you being able to approach him in prayer because he cares that much about your wife and he doesn't want you to continue to dishonor her and sin against him. I encourage you, do an honest assessment of yourself today, husbands. And if you're not living with your wife in an understanding way and if you're not showing her honor, don't bother coming up with all the reasons why that is, all of her faults. God's not listening to that. The issue is you. Repent today. Treat your wife with love and with kindness. And even if by chance she wasn't treating you well, follow Jesus' example, who when he wasn't treated well still, entrusted himself to God and obeyed. I'll go back to a verse that I read at the beginning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. For every Christian husband here, I would just say, is your behavior towards your wife excellent such that your unbelieving friends and family and your children would look at how you treat your wife and glorify God because of it. Paul told us in Ephesians that we read as our scripture reading 
multiple times, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Peter's not saying anything different. He's just showing one way to determine whether we actually are doing that. It's your testimony to your children and to the fallen world in which you live. How are you doing? And I plead with you today for the Lord's sake. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Show your wives honor. And you may have never done that in 10 years of marriage or 20 years of marriage or 30 years of marriage. If you're a believer, it's not too late. Start today. Confess your sins and God is faithful and righteous to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But then do what the Lord commands. And don't deceive yourself by putting up a good show for Sunday morning. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God's watching, man. For the sake of your testimony and relationship with God, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I can't preach a message like this without being convicted of my own shortcomings as a husband. Lord, forgive me. But I thank you, Lord, for the conviction and the clarity of your word. I pray for the marriages of Lakeside. Lord, Satan is prowling around like a lion, seeking those he can devour, and he wants to devour Christian marriages. Lord, I pray for your protection. But Lord, from your word, it's clear the beginning is for husbands to do what you say. The buck stops with them, so to speak. Lord, I pray for every man who's heard my words, who's married, that you would convict him, that he would repent. Lord, where he's doing well, I pray that he would excel still more. And where he's falling short, I pray that he wouldn't be content with it, that he wouldn't minimize it, he wouldn't justify it, but that your spirit would convict him. And Lord, I pray for the wives some of whom rejoiced at hearing this message and some of whom it crushed their hearts. Pray that you would encourage them, strengthen them, and help them come alongside their husbands. And Lord, I know some who heard my words don't understand any of it because they're not born again. I pray in the midst of all of this, they'll understand that Jesus came and died for sinners like them and that if they'll place their faith in him understand that he took the penalty for the sins of all those who would ever believe pray that you would draw them to yourselves Lord each one of us falls short in so many ways but I thank you for your grace and for your mercy and for your forgiveness and I pray for the conviction of your spirit on our hearts so that we wouldn't just be hearers of your words but that we would be doers Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.